This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Flick Ford and in Paul's absence, I'll be your host. I'm going to apologise in advance for all my <laughs> terrible zingers that are going to be coming your way for the next hour. Don't, Paul's put so much additional pressure on himself with <laughs> these zingers. I know. Like, it's a lot of, it's a, it's well, a hard act to yeah, follow. Yeah. And joining me in the studio, we have Sally Christie. Hello, Sally. Hello, Flick. It's, I've had a, a week away and it's nice to be back here. You're all refreshed. I am, I am. <laughs> And we also have Emma Westwood. Hello, Emma. I never leave. <laughs> it appears. She's actually trapped in the studio. She's Emma sleeps situation. under the desk. <laughs> That's right. We open with Alma Harrell's Honey Boy, written and stu- written by and starring everyone's favourite walking art installation, Shia LaBeouf. Or LaBeouf. We were not sure. We don't know. So we'll just alternate, I think. It's going to change. It's going to be a... Piece of French steak, Le Boeuf. Yeah. And then we're going to catch up with our NMS interview with the man behind The Invisible Man, the director and former triple, former triple R film reviewer, Lee Winnell. And we finish off the hour with um, watching Elizabeth Moth's Cecil, uh, Cecile, sorry, see right through The Invisible Man. But first, it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. Documentary. Ooh. Last time I was, <laughs> I was like, how long is this going to go I for? Was here, Paul was just making that noise himself. <laughs> We're moving up in the world. Things have changed. <laughs> so good. away one week. And he knew I couldn't replicate it, so he's like, here is the audio flick. Okay, news time. Documentary maker Janine Hosking has been awarded the 21st Stanley Hawes Award for her outstanding contribution to the documentary sector in Australia. Hosking produced and directed the 2001 documentary My Kim Heart, which was shortlisted for an Academy Award nomination. And she also directed the 2007 documentary Ganja Queen about the trial of Chappelle Corby. Her feature documentary, 35 Letters, won Best Documentary at the Sydney Film Festival in 2014. And her most recent documentary, the eulogy was last year nominated for an AACTA award. Hosking is one of the many documentarians featured in the upcoming Australian International Documentary Conference. Oh, sorry, it launched yesterday actually, and will be running until the Wednesday, 4th of March, at the State Library of Victoria. The Fashion Film Awards ceremony is happening this Thursday. The event is part of the Melbourne Fashion Festival, running from March 4 to the 14th, and includes a panel discussion with directors Gracie Otto, Victoria Thompson and Lucy Schroeder, talking about the intersection of content and art within the fashion film medium. Held in the Capitol Theatre, the event features shortlisted films, which will be screened alongside the best of RMIT student fashion films. For more information, just check out vamff.com.au. And finally, Dead House Dark, created by Australian producer, screenwriter, screen editor and director Enzo Tedeschi, will be the nation's only entry in the globally recognised short-form competition at this year's Cannes series, which takes place from March 27 to April 1. Dead House Dark is a series of six interconnected short-form 
horror stories anchored by a woman who receives a mystery box from the dark web and then discovers the sinister sinister secret it holds. The series stars Nicholas Hope, Barbara Bingham and Laura Lauren Oral, and it's expected to be released later this year. And now, let's see what's on at the movies. He was a sociopath. He said that I could never leave him. He controlled how I looked and what I wore. Then I was controlling when I left the house and eventually what I thought. Adapted from 1897 H.G. Wells' novel of the same name, The Invisible Man is the latest cinematic reboot of the story following on from the 1933 American pre-code science science fiction horror film directed by James Whale and Paul Verhoeven's 2000 adaptation Hollow Man starring Kevin Bacon, Elizabeth Shue and Josh Brolin. In this 2020 adaptation, um, directed by Australian screenwriter, actor, producer, director and former Breakfasters film reviewer Lee Winnell, best known for writing the 2004 horror film Saw and directing the 2018 action sci-fi Upgrade, the Invisible Man stars Elizabeth Moss and tells the story of a woman being terrorised by the memory of her recently deceased abusive boyfriend. Look, I'm sure we've all been ghosted before, but Sally, were you willing to give the Invisible Man a second date? <laughs> well, I, don't oh, I don't know. He was I, did get, I gave him a second date. Yeah, Emma, I actually you, did. You went and gave him a second date last yeah. night. <laughs> It was, it was interesting because we looked at um, The Invisible Man, the 1933, is that correct, Emma? Uh, yes. 33, yes. Uh, James Whale version, yeah. as one of our retro picks last year, so not so long ago. And um, so coming away from watching that quite recently to into Lee 1L's sort of updated version, I, I really found a joy. It, I, I, I love that Lee Wanell is doing such great things. One thing that I was saying to Emma before, my mum said that she was interested in seeing this movie and I said that Lee from Recovery has made this. <laughs> and she said, oh, you know, good on him. I love that him. your mum was a re- recovery yeah, fan. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So, um, so it's nice that he's gone and done, you know, those big Hollywood things. But I, in all honesty, I haven't been a massive fan of the work that he has done up until this point. I really Oh, loved- you didn't like Upgrade? I think I'm the only person who loves that film. Flick, I loathed it. I loathed it. I didn't see it. Like, I really disliked it. I don't want to, like, build it up too much, but I think... I really genuinely enjoyed it a lot. It was good I, action. I don't want to, you know, rip into it. No, too okay. Much. And we're not here to talk about Upgrade. I, I did not. I was not a okay. fan of Upgrade. Um, I'll just leave it at that. But <laughs> The Invisible Man, I thought it was great. It really reminded me of going back into, it was just a really clean social commentary on, obviously, domestic abuse and um, the different ways that, you know, women are sort of, you know, we look at gaslighting within relationships it reminded me of a really great film that I love called Let's Scare Jessica to Death um that was I think 71 71 but um yeah I I thought I I love the one of my great loves of horror is that it is it can be used as a social commentary and we can have things taken to excess and the way that we feel these sort of emotions when we're in awful situations and I think that Lee Wanell's The Invisible Man did a really good 
job of that and made it really accessible to oh, everybody. Absolutely. Not in a wanky way where it's like, oh, you have to know this to be able to to understand this. It was, you know, it was overt. It's explicit. And I really enjoyed that about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I completely agree. Yep. I've, I'm kind of um, a bit anxious about cutting to you, Emma, because I feel like you're an expert on this. <laughs> oh, you're going to no. just be. Not at all. Not uh, as much as Sally, I would say. Uh, this, uh, But you did forget to mention Memoirs of an Invisible Man in your intro flick. Oh, of course. There's John too Carpenter's many. great with Chevy Chase, <laughs> which is 1992. Great. Invisible Man film. James Chase and Daryl Hannah. Yes. yes. Just as yes. a side note, the mm. um, extra research I was doing for this episode, I was just went into an Invisible Man vortex. So I'm very ashamed that I missed that because I oh. end up going to this deep <laughs> trivia about not even the not even the the, um, <laughs> the film I was meant to be reviewing. <laughs> it is like that though. Anyway. You can and draw on it, but. Um, when you get to when we get to the interview mm. that I did with Lee Winnell, he kind of goes to pains to say that he's not riffing on any other films, but he was a film reviewer, so I think oh, and it's you know, so it's hard um, not to digest it. I, I don't yeah. think that you can't not riff on and anything it, yeah. else. That's just how how we you and, know people as artists operate, and it yeah. doesn't and it doesn't exist in a vacuum. I think the Invisible Man has been around like this this. Idea has been around for since almost what, 100 years. Yeah. If we're, we're looking at the 33 James Whale Invisible Man, you know, he was brilliant with, you know, medicine. And we're looking at James Whale's Invisible Man, he's brilliant with technology and it's upgrading what this. Upgrade. Up, <laughs> upgrade. <laughs> She's a secret fan. <laughs> Yeah, I love but, that he's a tech bro. That's yeah. a believable. And it's kind of like Claude Rains in the original one yeah. is, you know, also a genius at, at one thing or another. And I also really enjoyed how they're just both assholes. Yeah, I think that That's, the, 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 the I, it's the a thing. Hint. Yeah, sorry, okay. go ahead. Okay. Universal Monsters. The, all the Universal Monsters, I feel, are quite sweet, except for the Invisible Man. He's a real prick. Like, he's a total prick, and I think yeah. that comes through in this. It's not a remake. It's, you know. It lends itself. Yeah. That idea, though, yeah, lends itself to that narcissism and sadism. And I think that for Winnell to take it and couch it in terms of this domestic abuse environment was really, you know, appropriate. It was the right time as well. And uh, and it's communicated really well through this film. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Those, I thought I love the way that the narrative itself brings in actual like very believable scenarios for a lot of um intimate partner uh, violence and i I think that um especially having those scenes shot in the film and they're sorry in the kitchen and in this domestic space so um elizabeth moss's character is you know traumatized um and, and anxious to leave the house and so remains in the house and it's kind of fantastic the way in which this sense of invisibility plays out in the narrative sense as well about what we don't see behind closed doors and the way in which that violence and that abuse like her, her sister doesn't know about how he's been treating her while he's been alive and also um, his brother also seems to be sort of aware of it but doesn't really comment on Like he's had his own experience with his brother being quite violent and abusive towards him. But I, I loved that sort of that doubling up and I think this would be a great film for uh, first-year media students to study or, um, you know, yeah, fil- for film right. criticism because it has that depth of intertextuality with all of these other earlier mm. remakes but also 
um, I heard him, heard an, um, him mention it as a, a social, this trend in social horror, and I think that fits that, in perfectly with this. So, horror is always, I think, of a, course. a social commentary. Yeah, yeah. I, but yeah. I, yes. I, one thing that I think really struck a chord with me watching this film, if we're talking about domestic violence, um, which is definitely what the film The Invisible Man, which we're talking about, is about, um, is we really get this sense that she has nowhere safe. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. Um, which, you know, people that are in a domestic violence situation, they don't have that. So it's this yeah. place where she's, if she goes home, she's not safe there. And there's one sort of scene where she leaves the home and it's like, oh shit, that we get more anxiety yeah. for her, that there's, there she has absolutely no safe space to I be actually, in. Yeah, mm. I actually think mm. it might be useful. I saw this just this afternoon and <laughs> needed some downtime after it. And I think it might be worth mentioning that for people who have experienced this sort of violence, they may not wish to see this film. I think it might be quite upsetting. I found it really difficult to watch in parts. Yep. And because of that build-up, and I love the way that um, uh, Wenel is kind of playing around with what we expect to see and... So often with this film, it's so tempting to do um, kind of special effects show because mm. it's just like – and earlier editions were all about that because of the nature of that. And yeah. this one is not about that. No. I feel like the, the it's more about the characters and the emotion of those characters. And it's not – if there is any sort of like showiness around the Invisible Man, it's always always related to that suspense and the threat of him in the house, which I thought yeah. was so masterful. He also uses a lot that – kind of uh, with, with the framing, the invisibility yeah. within the frame, which is that empty frame, yeah. and it just leaves it empty and doesn't actually give you anything. Yeah, I really appreciated that, especially with one particular shot in the kitchen where it was yes. like so there's this tension building up and then there's nothing. There's mm. just nothing. And then – but he would occasionally give you a moment like when uh, you you have her outside breathing the cold air and you see yeah. that just puff of mm. air – and that's just one of the moments. But otherwise, it's it can be – it's just an empty frame. So mm. it's it's a clever tactic because it means that you you, you continue watching because you're not sure whether you will see something. Or you won't, yeah. Or you won't because mm. it's invisible. Yeah. It's great. The Invisible Man concept is just a wonderful concept. And I think that he really he, – he, he just jumped on something that was perfect for the time. I think that people are open to – listening to about this in in this zeitgeist at the moment mm. um she also verbally i think that you know obviously symbolically it's played out really well but there was a, a part of the dialogue as well which was beautifully scripted where she talks about how his influence he dictated what she'd wear and then what she'd eat and then eventually what she'd say and then what she thought yeah. and giving that you know communicating that idea of him being everywhere and it getting inside her and being able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I and the, oh, sorry, Sally, you go. There was just lots of really clever things in this film, particularly there also, you know, I'm not giving away any spoilers, there is a dog in their relationship. Oh, yeah. And um, a really big factor of, as to why women stay in abusive relationships is because they're frightened of what will yeah. happen to their pets. Um, and that becomes apparent very quickly in this mm. film. It's a great so, opening scene, yeah. though, too. Yeah. yeah. It's so a great I opener. I thought there were lots yeah. of really interesting things that really, you know, sort of, I guess, rang true and, and in it, this film. Yeah, and mm. it really grounded the film. I think that I'm not as big a horror fan as the two other women <laughs> in this room. But I, I love the fact that um, it doesn't sort of bring into question, does the Invisible Man exist? The title, the film is called that, and, of course, he's there. And it's not... 
even though people around her don't believe her, the audience is with her. They're positioned alongside her. Yeah. And it's never her sanity, for the audience at least, is never brought into question. Mm-hmm. It's just, the, And so yeah. you live for the whole entire film with her frustration of constantly telling people and saying, this is happening to me and not being able to trust those people. And I thought just even the way in which... Um, part of the threat that he offers is actually breaking down those social connections. And that is, mm. that, I thought that is so yeah. true of what happens to a lot of people in those situations. There, there is a, if this sort of, you know, if, if this is in, interesting you, um, I think a film from like, the entity from the early 80s is a definitely a good partner piece mm. for this. Yeah. And, you know, not, we're talking about this as being fresh and new, but the entity mm. did this you know, 30-odd years ago in an, in an amazing way and the element of invisibility, whereas for her it was a paran- paranormal entity mm. that was raping her on a constant basis and it's like, you know, this is yeah. really full on. It was an incredibly powerful film and, yeah, amazing. and an amazing mm. performance by Barbara Hershey in that role as well. And, and we should also mention that sexual assault is referenced in this film as well. It is, yeah. And yep, so yep. Um, that also just a, a content advice for that. Mm. But um, And also there's the intertextuality of Elizabeth Moss from um, Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, so exactly. I think that that was a quite a powerful, she's quite an interesting, she's an obvious choice for this, but also she does exceptional in the role. And the removing of any um, sexualised relationships um, yeah. in the film, which that I, is, I thought was great. Yes, I agree. Because, mm. uh, yeah, that is so often something that just becomes commonplace. Exactly. To be fitted in. And it's not appropriate in that in that no, narrative no, at all. No, no. And the male, so the male, the main male relationship apart from the predator, the invisible man, is actually a friend. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking about uh, Lee Winnell's new film, The Invisible Man, which is now showing at all major cinemas. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. You're listening to Triple R. This is Primal Screen with Sally Christie, Emma Westwood and myself, Flick Ford. So uh, we opened the show with Lee Winnell's The Invisible Man and Emma had the pleasure of meeting with Lee. Was it last week, I think it was? Oh, it was ages ago. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, what it was, uh, I went a second time to see the film. I should couch this um, so you realise because it's mentioned in the interview. I went and saw this um, screening that was only a few days after the film had finished. So I wasn't officially meant to review from that. So I went and saw it a second time yesterday. Uh, And it is, that was a kind of, uh, when was it? Somewhere in, sometime in February. About three weeks, three three or four weeks ago. So then I interviewed him just after that. Oh, fantastic. So it was kind of bizarre. It was a strange little experience, but yeah. (laughs) Well, we're going to cut to that interview now. Hello, Lee. Are you there? Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's um, Emma Westwood from Primal Screen on Triple R. Awesome. Welcome back to Triple R. All right. I always love to come back to Triple R. If I'm doing an Australian uh, promo trip, I want to be involved. That's great. Maybe you can explain to to our listeners uh, what your relationship with Triple R is. Well, I used to review movies. Uh, I, I started out on recovery doing movie reviews. And then uh, that kind of bled over into doing uh, movie reviews for the morning show uh, when Angus Sampson was a member of the uh, notorious 
Phoebe Squared, Tony Wilson, Sam Pang, Angus Sampson years. Wow. Some of them haven't left even. <laughs> but there's always <laughs> once you're part of the Triple R family, you never leave. As you know, being here today. <laughs> But there's a lot of water under the bridge since you were at Triple uh, R. Um, so let's jump straight into The Invisible Man, though, because this is the the film that you've got um, released or releasing at the moment. So as writer, director, producer, maybe you can tell me how you came to this project. Um, it wasn't something that I was actively seeking out. I had finished Upgrade. I'd kind of been bitten by the action movie bug and I was you know, wanting to go crash some more cars. I wanted to blow up some buildings. You know, <laughs> really get my lethal weapon on. And uh, and I, I took a meeting, and I was certain that this meeting was going to be about how great Upgrade was, and indeed how great I was. And uh, instead, the subject quickly changed to The Invisible Man, and I was pretty mystified as to why we were talking about uh, The Invisible Man. And... Um, one of the people at the meeting said, well, what would you do with this character? You know, what would be your take? And purely off the top of my head, I started talking about how I would tell the story from the point of view of the victim and maybe it would be about a woman escaping from a really bad relationship. And that was it. That one little pebble turned into a boulder and, and took up a year of my life. Wow. So did, the, um, did you come to The Invisible Man with an actual grounding of maybe the other films that have come beforehand or even just the Wells book or the James Well film from 1933. Can you believe it? I know. Uh, I, no, I, I, I didn't actually. I, <clears throat> of course I knew of those films and those works, but I, I, I hadn't seen them in a while and I didn't want to. Perhaps this makes me a bad researcher, but I, I wanted to pretend like no other Invisible Man film had ever been made not because I wanted to ignore the lineage of this character, but I wanted to approach it in such a modern, fresh context that I didn't want that baggage, you know, hanging around, taking up rent-free space in my brain. Um, So I just think I kind of stayed blissfully ignorant of these other uh, iterations of the character. No matter how much you try to write something original, something unique, the the films that you've seen and loved kind of bubble in there. And sometimes it catches you by surprise. Um, someone I was talking to today said, oh, one of those shots in the film was obviously influenced by heat. And when I thought about it for, for a second, I, I realised that was true. You know, it was a very similar shot. So it, it happens. But um, the goal is to leave moviegoers with a sense that they've seen something new. Like, I want other filmmakers to be influenced by me. I don't want to be showing off my influences, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I'm I'm intrigued to know, though, what was the shot that was influenced by, or that was told to you that was influenced by Heat? It's a shot of Elizabeth Moss standing in front of these glass windows looking out over the ocean. Yeah. And it's really reminiscent of a, a shot in Heat where Robert De Niro is standing in front of glass windows looking out at the ocean out tonight. And, and that's a film that I really love and I think it has really iconic cinematography. So um, <laughs> I have to fess up to that one, that that one definitely escaped through the uh, shark net. 
definitely the sparse interior design of that house <laughs> had a feel of heat. I can see that. Um, yeah, for sure. You were talking about Elizabeth Moss just then. I mean, she's ubiquitous at the moment. She seems to be everywhere. Um, how did you get her interested in the film? Um, I wish I knew. I mean, essentially it's the script. I think uh, Elizabeth is at a point where she can pick and choose projects. She's probably getting a lot of different offers. Um, and she just responded to the script. Um, I really put a lot of work into the script. I was really proud of it. But you just never know with actors, especially busy actors, you you don't even know if they're going to read it. And you can play this torturous waiting game where you sit around for six months waiting for a certain actor to get back to you. And, And by the way, the unofficial rule in Hollywood is you're only allowed to go to one actor at a time. Ah, okay. Yeah, so you have to sit there and wait for so-and-so to say no before you can move on. Um, with with Lizzie, it wasn't a long wait. She got back to me pretty quickly. We had a great phone call. Actually, it was an awkward phone call because my kids were screaming in the back seat of the car and I, I couldn't quite hear her. Um, but it was great in the sense that we finished by saying, let's do this. She was like, I'm in. Um, so... It all came together really naturally. You know, the movie gods were on the side of this film. I've worked on movies that were seemingly cursed, and I've worked on films that had this, you know, a charmed life. And uh, I felt like this one, at least for the shoot, had a really charmed existence. You know, the, the crew was great. We all had a good time. The actors were easy to get along with. Everybody was doing their job. It was just a... A fun experience. That's great because it looked like that it was a quite an exhausting role for, especially for Elizabeth Moss, and those um, yeah. sort of one-sided because she's fighting with invisibility. One one-sided fight scenes. What was that like to direct? Like, did were they sort of choreographed, or did you just let them let them go? Oh, no, yeah, they're choreographed within an inch of their life. Wow, um, it's uh, it's it's almost like directing a. Uh, a dance sequence more than an acting scene. It's a, it, it's a mixture of um, robotics. The camera is actually a motion control camera and it's, it's all pre-programmed to move where it's got to move at a certain point. So the actors have to hit their marks, which is what makes it seem more like dance choreography than anything. And um, it, it's, a, it's very stressful. It's gratifying when you get it right. But... The, the the amount of hours and and the amount of meetings that go into a scene like the one you described is uh, incredible. You know, you've really got to be planning. Just and then it's all over in a day. You know, months <laughs> and months of meetings and planning, and then it gets to the big day. And but you get the payoff in the end. That's the thing. Exactly. Well, you know, only the audience can tell me that. Like. Um, you know, you you're the one who's seen the film with a fresh set of eyes. So you know, yeah. if you think it's effective, then I'm succeeded. I think the other night when I was privileged to see it um, in in Melbourne was probably one of the first screenings in the world, was it? Yeah, was that the one where I did a Q and A? Yep, that's right. Okay, that one. Great. It was. Uh, we only finished the film on Friday. Oh, my God, really? You're joking. Yeah. So what was that like to actually sit there? Were you in the audience when it was um, it was screening? Uh, I would pop my head in occasionally. <laughs> I, 
I find it quite mortifying to sit in an audience and listen to them react to the film because I take every movement, uh, every person getting up to go to the toilet as a personal insult. <laughs> and it's just too painful. So I have to stay away from it. And um, I did stick my head in at certain moments. What I like to do is kind of take the temperature of the audience at the end. So once the film is over, then I feel safe to go through the crowd and ask them what they think. And a lot of positive things were said. So I was in a really good mood that night. Oh, excellent. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a world premiere two days after we finished. Wow, that's it. that's incredible because you only finished uh, shooting in September, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's not long ago. That's a very fast turnaround. I know. It's been a very accelerated process. We've backed the film into the release date. Um, but I can tell you, on my last film, Upgrade, we had all the time in the world to finish it because nobody cared. Uh, on this movie, we had no time at all to finish the film because everybody cared. Uh, a major studio was prioritising it, and I know which problem I'd prefer. Uh, the latter, every time. I, I, I'd rather be rushing to get something done knowing that it's going to be released uh, rather than sitting there on pins and needles thinking, is this ever going to see the light of day? Yeah, fair enough. So um, this is forming part of, I think, Universal Studios' reboot of these original monster films, and um, they're all going to be standalone films from um, what I know. Uh, will you be involved in any others, do you think? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not a great multitasker, I'll tell you that. I can only concentrate on one film at a time. Uh, I'm never thinking ahead. You know, I'm never thinking about the next project while I'm making one project. I really need to put something to bed before I can even start thinking about the next one. So I haven't given it a second thought, but uh, we'll see. Oh, I hope you do. Just so you know, uh, you successfully made my friends scream four times in the cinema. Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. Um, that's a compliment. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Lee. Um, thanks for joining us thanks on Primal Screen. And uh, best of luck with the release of the film. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you. Cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. In 2017, actor Shia LaBeouf was arrested for public intoxication and was ordered to attend a 10-week rehab program. During the program, he was diagnosed with PTSD and encouraged to write about his early childhood experiences. He adapted these writings into a screenplay and two weeks after getting out of rehab, filming started on a semi-fictionalised film of his life titled Honey Boy. Two Dur weeks after? Yeah, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's good. <laughs> Um, directed by music video director and filmmaker Alma Harrell, the film Alma Harrell, the film tells the story of Otis, a young actor whose difficult childhood growing up in a trailer park with his father, a recovering, recovering alcoholic, creates a painful dissonance between his lived reality and the fictional family he performs on screen. The film stars Lucas Hedges as a rage-fueled Otis in his early 20s struggling to contain his emotions and softening the hard edges of his childhood memories with alcohol abuse. 
with Noah Jupe playing 12-year-old Otis in these flashbacks. When Otis is arrested following a car crash, he is ordered into rehab and undergoes anger management therapy, which forces him to reflect on the abuse he suffered at the hands of his father. In a further meta twist of the creative and perhaps emotional knife, it is LaBeouf himself who plays his father in the film. Emma, I've got a rather glib segue to our discussion, so Chanel seems a little bit inappropriate. But here we go. Uh, did Honey Boy sweeten your day or did you just want it to buzz off? <laughs> oh, flick. Sorry. Sorry to everyone. This is um, as indulgent as Honey, let's say. <laughs> it's it's a very self-indulgent film indeed. Um Really self-indulgent, as as your intro probably intimated. Really, uh, I although encased in or as part of all of that, uh, there is extreme accomplishment in this film. Uh, I don't know whether it's really my bag, but I can appreciate it. I especially think that it really shines in. Um, the performances. Noah Jupe is just oh, incredible. He stole. Isn't he amazing? He's exceptional. For I he forgot that it was an actor. Absolutely <laughs> incredible. Yeah. So that's the that's the young boy who's playing uh, the, the young Shire. Uh, well, Shire Otis, Le- technically. Otis. But it's also Shire. Otis, we all know it's Shire. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Shire, well, look, you know, amazing what yeah. he was doing as well. But I think that the direction is just mind-blowingly good and um there was it's also so alma harrell and uh shot by natasha breyer as Mm. well and she comes from a documentary well she comes from a mixed documentary and fictional feature um background she shot neon demon which i just love the visual design i freaking love that film anyway (laughs) so uh it, amazing talent behind it, and that. Um, but this is Shia LaBeouf's um, uh, vanity project. Uh, it, even them, in terms of, I read some stuff. This is the interesting thing about this film. It seems to come alive while you, in reading more about it and finding out more about it because it is an exceptional. Um, it's exceptional scenario, and to be able to even as an actor to be able to make this film is quite. Unbelievable. Uh, apparently they'd have to get his takes almost in one take mm. because he had to go into the trauma and revisit the trauma. Yeah, or they'd just keep on going and do another shot at the same time before he went out of character. It sounds like an incredibly difficult set. And they shot it in 19 days. They shot it in 19 days and mm. he also it had to be lit. The cinematography had to light it for 360 degree performance so they could move within the frame as much as they wanted and basically wow. the director had to follow them because it has a very documentary feel Absolutely. and some beautiful sort of um, light flares into the camera and that. It actually reminded me a bit of American Honey which Shia LaBeouf yeah, is in. Yeah, and you can I love see, that film. Yeah, which is Andrea Arnold, Mm. another female director. And you can see where I think he's taken a little bit of influence Mm. there and kind of channeled it into this, I'd say. Yeah, I went to this film. I knew it was Shia LaBeouf's maybe semi-autobiographical piece. For some reason I thought that he was going to be directing it, but obviously he didn't. I I think I put that seed of um, doubt because I kept on just talking about him. (laughs) It is an assumption, though. I can see where you could make that assumption. I I, um, 
didn't know a whole heap of his backstory. Um, there were a few things about this film that I did find really interesting. By no means is it groundbreaking or breathtaking, but it's still a really solid film. Um, like Emma said, Noah Jupe's performance is absolutely incredible. But the things, yeah, that I found... I guess interesting about this film, particularly we're looking at a child actor, which I didn't, I wasn't even aware that Charlotte Booth was a child oh, right. actor. I didn't even yeah. know that. I'm only aware of his work as an adult. I have, yeah, I have a friend so, who used to watch Even Stevens, which is yeah. the TV show, and she was just like, it's, it was a really strange experience for her watching it. So yeah, I, yeah. I had absolutely no idea that he was a child mm. actor. Um, so looking at having a child actor living in, um, you know, almost poverty was, I, I think, an interesting approach Absolutely. to things. We, yeah. We're not used to seeing that. If yeah. we're looking at something with a child actor and stage parents, we're expecting something more lavish. That's what we're used to seeing on a screen. Glamorisation of Hollywood yep. anyway. Yeah. And that totally flipped this on its head in a way that, yeah, I, I felt was really impressive. Um, I also found it interesting about his dad's clown makeup. That was one thing that really I was – because I went and I wanted to research more about it because his dad has this clown makeup, which is pretty much exactly the same as the clown makeup in um, the American TV show that ran from the 1940s to 1960s, Howdy Doody, yeah. uh, which one of my absolute favourite people in the world, Divine's makeup, was modelled on. So I went through this bit of a phase when I was watching the film going, oh, my God, is Shia LaBeouf's dad the clown from Howdy <laughs> and um, he's not at all. And chickens um, in this yeah. film. What was the chicken thing? Henrietta Lafau. Yeah. So <laughs> there was, and, and it, it does, it looks beautiful. And you can tell it comes from somebody that is directing music videos because it looks like a really beautiful, long music video. That is, that is actually my it's main almost, criticism it, of it, it is feels, that it's, it's, set, it's too much in that one yeah. tone. And it's, I it don't feels think like a dream yeah. almost. It feels and like I, a dream. And I yeah. think it's fine to have those sequences, especially in a film all about trauma and memory, but it just goes – that sequence doesn't change, mm-hmm. which is a shame. It stays at that same note. Yep. And it's a powerful note. Like it's really um, uncomfortable watching those scenes, especially with this young actor um, playing those with such um, – Oh, just um, astonishing emotional depth. I really love moments of this film. Yeah. And I, I actually am, adore Shia, so I'm sort of so like... So do I. Yeah, I'm a I, fan too. Yeah, like, and, I, I love all yeah. of his like, performance artist stuff. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so there for him with that and, kind of thing. And his story, I think I'm just disappointed that this wasn't what I was hoping it would be. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he, he exists at such a fascinating intersection as a young, as a childhood actor who went through and was really like kind of like the bad boy of cinema in a lot of ways, mainly because of his behaviour and being, um, and, and been being ridiculed a lot for some of his performances and, and quite harshly. Um, but also he's um, he's also alleged to have been raped during um, a art installation that he did. He's also um, been involved in a lot of art projects since then mm. and talked quite openly about his experiences but still been quite often um, the butt of jokes. And I just find him a really fascinating creature. I love mm. watching him on screen. Yeah, I like and him I, too. And I really was happy that Lucas Hedges was playing him, but I feel like Lucas Hedges isn't given much to work with. He stays at this one angry note. He does, and yeah. I one reviewer referred to him as an angry porcupine. <laughs> like, there was mm, accurate. Uh, there's so many films that deal with the subject of um, you know addiction and overcoming that and what you do with that. And there's a lot of 
power that can be had in those films mm. and I don't think this film had any of that power behind it. I think that there was two – it was two um, – uh, in the bits that it needed to be a little um, more uh, – what's the right word? I feel like I hated that bit where they basically – the character of Otis is like, I'm going to write a film. It's like, oh, this is the film we're watching. Yeah. And I think that we don't need to be – we don't need to have our – Yeah, we don't need to have our hand held. It's too meditational. But, yeah. I wanted to know more about the chicken. Yeah. <laughs> Henrietta LaFowl. <laughs> I think I just think there's so much material and maybe they were just pairing it back too much – and not going to, um, I don't know, just need more structure in my mind. Mm. I, I think it's really powerful and I wish, I'd love to almost watch a remake of this film where they, like almost like they resubmit it and go like, this is actually what we meant to do because <laughs> there's so much potential there from all of the actors, from all of the creatives involved in this. There's so much potential. I think what we're all saying, all right, and I agree, this film has its head too far up its own ass. <laughs> Emma, you're too cool. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, I think that um, Shire's intensity pulls it through. The fact he plays his father is fascinating to me. And I think that the whole thing of him having to take breaks from it, I can't imagine what that would have been oh, like. It's it's nuts. Yeah. It's nuts. But that's why this film has its head up its ass. <laughs> it's as in, you know, it's so – it's just – it's a film he's making for himself. I think it's even in terms of what the his director's doing, um, cinematographer, like the, what they do is incredible, I, but I they're dictated by him. I really? I yeah, so I think that he's doing a very interesting thing in that usually with these stories of childhood actors, the thing is that, you know, the, the real demon in the room is usually that the showbiz did this to me. His experience of showbiz, and surely, like, there might have been moments of neglect that he experienced or feeling, like, separated from school and stuff like that. But the abuse is not happening largely on the showbiz set. It's happening at home. And then showbiz for him is a way of escaping. He gets offered a sense of family through those moments. And I thought mm. it's interesting that he's then returning to cinema to to tell that story. It's like a safe space for him in which to, mm. to kind of engage with these really dark elements of his past. I really want Big Mac Culkin to make a biopic. Oh, of- yes. <laughs> Bring oh. back the Big Mac. Well, yeah, well, he's coming back. American Horror Story season ten. Re- season yeah. ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's in it. Well, we have been wow, chatting. Just to derail. Things, <laughs> Sorry, we'll talk off air about this. Um, we have been talking about Honey Boy, which is now screening at all major and independent cinemas in Melbourne. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. Been listening to Primal Screen on Three Triple R with Sally Christie, Emma Westwood, and myself, Flick Ford. We reviewed Lee Winnell's contemporary remake, The Invisible Man, and Emma spoke with Lee about the processes of making it. And just before the break, we talked about Alma Harrell's Honey Boy. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast and to Carl Chapman for panelling the show and this week and Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.